welcome to episode 43 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your most gracious host, Kristen Haas, aka Kiki Writes. We're working our way through season four, and I'll be talking about two more episodes. Season four, episode nine, Burning Ice, and episode 10, Rest in Peace, Somebody. Now, you've probably heard of the last couple of episodes, the fan noise in the background. This is because I have found that the fan noise is easier to minimize and reduce in the background, and I find it less distracting than someone in my house talking incredibly loudly, or the neighbor's dogs barking, or somebody watching something at an incredible volume that involves a lot of background music and incessant screaming. Hopefully you find it less distracting too. I find it fades away as you listen to the episode. So hopefully this bit of ambiance is a little more bearable than some of the background noise that we've dealt with over the past few seasons. I'm sure if it's not, someone will tell me loudly and rudely. And just a heads up, I don't know who watches the episodes before they listen to the episodes of my podcast. But I'm going to strongly suggest that you watch both of these episodes before you listen to me ramble on about them, just to get that pristine experience. Both episodes are actually really great on the initial and the rewatches. It doesn't take a whole lot away, but I will be docking borderline spoilery stuff. So you may want to watch the episodes first and get that pristine viewing before you listen to me go on about them, just to be safe. Anyway... Let's go to Hawaii. She was wearing this wristwatch, this necklace, and her engagement and wedding rings, of course. I don't know what all else. Why don't you just take... Here, take all of these. Thank you. Well, tell me, Doctor. Do you know of anyone who had a reason to kill your wife? I don't understand, Mr. McGarry. She was robbed. Isn't it obvious why she was killed? The obvious always bothers me, Doctor. Season 4, Episode 9, The Burning Ice. Air date, November 9th, 1971. Directed by Paul Stanley. This is his 12th of 19 episodes. And written by Ken Pettis. This is his 4th of 8 episodes. Dr. Southmore is working on a classic car in his garage when his wife Melissa comes home. They exchange some chilly words regarding Dr. Southmore's mistress, Betty, and how much time she's been spending with her parents. And then Melissa goes out to the pool, lying down on a nearby lounger, closing her eyes as she relaxes. A man who followed her to the house apparently takes that opportunity to shoot her and steal her jewelry, horrifying a maid who happens to look out the window. Vivo is on the scene. Kono digs two bullets out of the garage. Jay dusts for Prince. Someone bags Melissa's hands. Kono finds a gas receipt. Chin finds some distinct tire tracks. Good forensic work. In the garage, Southmore says he didn't hear the shots that killed his wife because he was using a very loud drill. He heard the maid Amanda scream when he shut it off and ran out of the garage to see a man running away. The man took a few shots at him, forcing him back into the garage. He ran back out just in time to see an older model car speed away. But he didn't get a good look at either the man or the car. He has insurance pictures of all of the jewelry and he hands them over since he's not certain what Melissa was wearing that might have been taken. Steve asks if anybody would want to kill his wife and Southmore doesn't understand. Isn't this a robbery? At 5-0 headquarters, Doc Bergman informs Steve that Mrs. Southmore was killed by two shots from a 38, one to the chest, and then one close range to the temple. The tire tracks found are nearly bald. Dano recounts Mrs. Southmore's last evening alive, which included dinner with friends. Steve wants the pawn shops and all of the known fences on alert for the missing diamonds. This ice is so hot, it's lava. Kono tracks down the gas receipt. According to the attendant, Mrs. Southmore drove into the station alone just before closing. Meanwhile, at a restaurant, fence Charlie Ling takes a call from someone and arranges to meet them at an overpass to inspect some merchandise. It's our suspected killer, David Harper, and he's eager to unload Mrs. Southmore's jewelry. Almost too eager. It makes Charlie suspicious, but they eventually agree on $1,000 to be exchanged at Sea Life Park at noon. Chin finds out that Southmore has a thirty-eight, and so Steve goes to his office to discuss that with him. 
There, Southmore is talking to Nurse Betty, who is definitely more than a colleague. It turns out that Mrs. Southmore's death is fortuitous because now they can be together. She's a little suspicious of the timing, but Southmore assures her that he had nothing to do with it. He does the same thing when Steve comes in and asks about his gun. It's right there in the desk drawer, ready for ballistics testing. He also admits to Steve that he had a strained relationship with his wife. He wanted a divorce. She wouldn't give him one without making him pay through the nose. And so they basically lived separate lives. Sounds like a standard head relationship to me. Jay tests Southmore's gun. The striations on his test bullet are much lighter than the ones in the bullets found at the scene. He declares them to be not a match. Dano catches Charlie before he can go to Sea Life Park. He wants to talk about Mrs. Southmore's stolen diamonds. After seeing a picture of them, Charlie doesn't. But Dano insists. Five-O has Sea Life Park staked out. They watch as Harper approaches Charlie, but just as the exchange begins to take place, Harper gets spooked at the sight of Kono and runs for it. He leads Danny, Kono, and Steve on a chase throughout the park before finally being caught in a souvenir shop, where a quick search finds the stolen diamonds in his possession. While Danny and Kono go to Harper's house to inform his wife of his situation, Harper breaks the silence, giving his statement to Steve. He claims that he'd gone to the gas station to rob it, but saw Mrs. Southmore and her jewelry instead. He followed her home, killed her, and took her jewelry. He finishes his statement by saying that he threw the gun into the Alawai Canal. Steve attempts to trip him up on the facts, but Harper can't be shaken, probably because he's already shaky. He looks unwell, and Steve asks if he's all right. Harper insists that he is, only to later collapse when his mugshot is being taken. Danny and Kono get a call from Steve to detour Mrs. Harper from 5-0 headquarters to the hospital. Alone, she asks him if it's true. He dies before he can explain himself. The doctor says it was from a brain hemorrhage, but the man was dead anyway. Leukemia. His motive must have been to get money for his wife and mentally disabled son before he died, but his wife insists that her husband is not a killer. It looks like case closed, but Steve doesn't trust a neat case. And that is what I love about this episode because it looks so very cut and dry. It looks like David Harper robbed and killed Mrs. Southmore and tried to fence the jewelry for only $1,000, possibly because he was looking to unload it because of the crime, possibly because of his inexperience as being a criminal, but he wanted to get rid of it. Then he unfortunately dies from a brain hemorrhage, even though he was dying of leukemia. And it's just pure coincidence that Mrs. Southmore and her husband are living estranged married lives. It all looks very, very neat. And that drives Steve insane. He doesn't believe in any case. He doesn't believe in coincidences. He doesn't believe that cases should be handed to him with a bow. Not a 5-0 case. Maybe an HPD case, but not a 5-0 case. And so he does his due diligence investigating multiple angles. They acquire quite a bit of forensic evidence from the scene. They find the slugs. They find tire tracks. They find the gas receipts. They do their due diligence in investigating these angles. So when it comes to confronting David Harper, arresting and confronting him, Steve makes sure to point out that they have all of this evidence against him. So even if he doesn't give a statement, he's still looking at murder one. He's still caught. He doesn't have to give a confession. They have him. And so because Steve doesn't like a neat case, you can understand him when he finds out that Dr. Southmore has a 38 that he would go double check that. Because he does like to cover his angles. He doesn't believe in any case. He doesn't believe in the obvious. And the thing is, is that for quite a while, you can totally see how Southmore's story is plausible. Because we see him working in the garage with the drill when his wife comes home. The drill is very loud because he doesn't hear her approach, doesn't hear her pull up. So you could understand why he wouldn't hear the gunshots and only hear Amanda scream after he turns the drill off. He is very forthcoming with providing any information he can for 5-0, where Melissa has been, here is her jewelry, I know she was wearing this, this, and this, but here take all of these insurance pictures because I can't remember exactly what she was wearing, here's what happened, and the way he tells the story in that he heard Amanda scream, he ran out, the guy took a couple of shots at him, but he didn't really get to see him, he was just a shadow, 
But he did see the car and they asked him about that. And he said, well, after he ran back in, he heard the guy run away and he ran out and caught a glimpse of the car. It makes perfect sense. It doesn't sound fabricated. It sounds like someone in shock or someone really shaken up recounting the the events that had just happened. Because obviously he's been shot at. His wife is dead. So you can understand him being shaken up and wanting to be helpful, but not necessarily remembering all of the details all at once. And he's not necessarily thrown when Steve asks if anybody would want to kill his wife. He just is very confused and he just says, I thought this was a robbery. So you can totally see how this could be for him a coincidence. Later, though, when he talks to Nurse Betty, his mistress, and she asks if he might have done anything, anything like that, and he it maintains, no, no, this is just a coincidence. But then it starts getting a little bit convenient when Steve comes in and asks him about his relationship with his wife and he admits full on he wanted a divorce. She wouldn't give it to him without making him pay through the nose. And so they just chose to live separate lives that they were living together. They were technically still married, but they were not together together. You know, standard het marriage, people staying together for the kids, that kind of bullshit. They don't have kids, but you know what I mean. They're staying together for convenience sake, not because they love each other. And then Steve asks about the 38 because Chin comes back with that and he wants to do his due diligence. And lo and behold, that gun is in his desk drawer at his office. Why does a doctor need a gun at his at his workplace? That seems very eyebrow raising to me. What part of town do you work in that you feel you need to be armed I'm not so sure that I'm comfortable with my physician being armed, especially as big of a pain in the ass as I can be. The temptation is too great. Anyway, so you start kind of getting niggles about that. But we have David Harper on the other end, and he shows up to the overpass to discuss business with Charlie Ling, and he seems to be acting very nervous, which is understandable. He just murdered a woman for some jewelry. You can understand that he would want to get rid of that evidence. And Charlie picks up on that. Now, Charlie doesn't want to know his life story, doesn't want to know his name, doesn't want to know where he got the jewelry from, because why would he want to know things that could get him into even more trouble when he can conveniently have plausible deniability? But he's still kind of alarmed, I guess. His criminal spidey sense is tingling by the way that Harper wants to get rid of this jewelry as quick as possible. Now, it's later stated that it's like $30,000 worth of jewelry, and he ends up agreeing to get rid of it for a grand. Any career criminal, someone with experience, would have pushed Charlie harder for more money. And the reason why Charlie lowballs him so much is because he apparently wants to get rid of it so quickly. They agree to meet at Sea Life Park. Not that David Harper wants to. He wants to get the deal done right there, but Charlie's like, no. Because this is all the bread I got on me. One dime. Just enough for a phone call. This way, anything goes wrong, I tell a cop, so I'm just asking you for a light. So they agree to meet at Sea Life Park because that is where all nefarious plots and plans seem to go down. It's just a great place to do criminal business, I guess. But in the meantime, 5 has put out the word that the ice is lava hot. That way, pawn shops will immediately call in and any fences will let them know because they don't want to get busted with murder diamonds. And that's why Danny goes to see Charlie. He's a well-known fence and lets him know and shows him pictures of the jewelry. The thing is, is that Charlie like hesitates because he really kind of doesn't want to get in trouble by knowing that he's made this deal. He doesn't want to admit to that. So he hesitates to say anything, but Danny kind of picks up on the fact that he's holding back. So he forces him to divulge his information and they set up a stakeout at Sea Life Park. Now, I have to admit that I'm incredibly disappointed by the undercover wear in this particular episode. Kono's wearing an ugly Aloha shirt because he's dedicated. He's dedicated to Sparkle Motion. Danny is wearing his plain old polo and Steve shows up in his suit. Now, everybody's either carrying or wearing an overcoat, which I think is hilarious because now we're getting 1960s spy spoof vibes, but they're all there. They are keeping an eye on Charlie and David Harper shows up to make the exchange, but he's a very nervous man, apparently, 
And Charlie kind of tips him off by looking over towards Kono, because Kono's the closest. Kono starts to come over and Harper books it. Now, what's so fantastic about this is they chase his panting ass all through Sea Life Park before the three of them finally catch him. It takes forever. It's like five minute chase. Takes forever to catch this guy. So when later he collapses and dies, it makes them look even worse that they couldn't grab this sickly dude. But as it stands, they catch him in the souvenir shop, catch him with the diamonds on him, and they haul him in. And Steve lays out the evidence, and Harper eventually relents and makes a statement, and he's very specific. I started toward the house. I saw lights on around the swimming pool, and I saw the woman standing beside the pool, lying on a sort of chaise. I told you that. And then she saw you. Yes, and... and I shot her, just like that. Yes. Then you took her purse and her jewelry. It was $40 in the purse. 48 Why are you trying to trick me? Skip it. And I shot her again. To make sure that she was dead. To be sure that she'd never be able to identify me. And you sure there was no other reason? Yes. Okay. And I started back up the driveway and I heard somebody scream. And the guy came out of the garage. I sort of panicked. I took a couple of shots at him and he ducked back in the garage. And I ran back to my car and drove off. And drove straight home? No. I drove to the McCulley Street Bridge and threw the gun in the Alawite Canal. Please, I can't answer any more questions. But the whole time that he's giving his statement, he's sweating. He looks nervous, but he shouldn't be nervous because he's giving his statement and he's adamant about giving his statement. He looks ill. He looks uncomfortable and Steve asks him a couple of times if he's okay and he insists that he is. But once he does ask for a glass of water. So then later when he's getting booked and he collapses, you're kind of not surprised about it. And then when you think back to earlier in the episode when he's talking to Charlie and his condition when he's leading everybody on a chase through Sea Life Park, you realize he hasn't been nervous. He hasn't been an inexperienced criminal he is an ex- inexperienced criminal, but that's not the source of his agitation. It's that he's been sick this whole time. Danny and Shin have gone to talk to Mrs. Harper, who can't believe that her husband would do such a thing. So they bring her, they're bringing her to 5 headquarters so they can talk to her, but they get word that her husband's collapsed. They take her to the hospital. She tries to get him to talk to her. And aside from nodding when she asks if he did this, he can't explain himself. He dies and he dies of a brain hemorrhage. But then they find out that he had leukemia and there was nothing they could do for him. So the speculation is that he knew he was dying, knew there was nothing they could do for him. So he was trying to get money for his family before he died. Because we find out from talking to Mrs. Harper that they have a son who's about eight and he's mentally disabled to the extent that he has to live in what is basically a group home. And it's incredibly expensive. They said they had trouble affording it when they were both working. But then Harper got sick and he couldn't work and it was almost impossible to afford. So they speculate that, yeah, this is why he was getting this money. He was desperate to take care of his son. And so we're so caught up with this Harper angle that you kind of forget about the Southmore part. So even if you were suspicious of Dr. Southmore having a hand in his wife's death, You can't figure out how the two would connect because his wife, Harper's wife, is adamant that he would not have killed this woman, that he was the kindest, most gentlest man that ever walked the planet. He would not do that. And I think because Steve doesn't like the obvious, he's also bothered by this. And so he has the team look into Harper. He wants to know everything about him. He also wants to find the gun. He needs that evidence. And so he has the divers out at Alawai Canal looking for the gun and they can't find it. And he makes them at one point 
expand their search because he can't find it. And he really needs to find it. They also lean on Charlie again, asking him about the grand, because that's not a lot of money for $30,000 worth of diamonds to just get basically a drop from that cost. Even a decent criminal would have at least tried to get half of what they were worth. But Charlie maintains that's the deal he took. He only wanted a grand. Even though it looks like, yes, David Harbour did all of this, there are some threads that Steve has pulled and he doesn't like that they're loose. If this is going to come to him delivered with a bow, then he's going to be the one who tightens that bow. He wants to make sure it's that neat. Even though their suspect is dead, even though all of the evidence points to him, he needs to make sure. So they can't find the gun. Charlie insists that it was only $1,000 that Harper agreed to, no more, no less. And Southmore can't identify Harper. He says he's never seen him before, and he maintains that it was so dark, he only saw a shadow of a person. So he couldn't say if that was the man who shot his wife or not. So you have all of this going on. And then the deep dive on Harper's background comes back. He was drafted in the Vietnam War and refused to go as a conscientious objector. He said that there was no way he could take another human life. To the extent that he ended up taking a non-combat role as a medic to avoid going to jail for dodging the draft. So someone with that strong of a conviction about not killing someone would not murder a woman over thousands of dollars worth of jewelry that he's just going to hawk for a grand, even if he was desperate. When they look into the special school that Harper's son is at and find out that he can stay forever because they received a $75,000 cashier's check from David Harper, things start to come together a little bit more for Steve and proves once again why you don't trust the obvious. You know what else is obvious? The magnificence of this guest cast. And let's take a closer look at them. Dr. Alexander Southmore was played by Jackie Cooper. He was one of the most popular child stars of the 1930s. He was also nominated for a leading actor Oscar for Skippy. He was only about nine years old at the time. He was also Perry White in the Christopher Reeve Superman movies. He was Peter Campbell on Mobile One, Lieutenant Charles Chick Hennessy on Hennessy, and he was Socrates Sock Miller on The People's Choice. He also appeared in episodes of The Twilight Zone, McLeod, Ironside, FBI, Columbo, Heck Ramsey, The Invisible Man, The Rockford Files, St. Elsewhere, Murder, She Wrote, and Capital News. He appeared in the movies Surrender, Journey into Fear, Chosen Survivors, The Love Machine, Everything's Ducky, Kilroy Was Here, Men of Texas, Glamour Boy, Ziegfeld Girl, The Return of Frank James, and The Devil is a Sissy. And he appeared in the TV movies, The Astronaut of Men and Women, Dr. Dan, The Day the Earth Moved, and Mobile 2. And he has 45 directing credits, including episodes of Jake and the Fat Man, Superboy, Cagney and Lacey, Magnum P.I., Sledgehammer, The White Shadow, Black Sheep Squadron, The Rockford Files, MASH, Hennessy, and People's Choice. He also has a directing credit for the movie Stand Up and Be Counted. And he has directing credits for the TV movies The Ladies, The Night They Saved Christmas, White Mama, and Sex and the Single Parent. David Harper was played by Lou Antonio. He was Joseph Minucci on Making It, Detective Sergeant Jack Ramsey on Dog and Cat, and he was Barney on The Snoop Sisters. He also appeared in episodes of Have Gun, Will Travel, The Naked City, Route 66, 12 O'Clock High, The Fugitive, The Monkees, which is probably where I know him best from. Hillbilly Honeymoon is hilarious. I Dream of Genies, Star Trek, the infamous black-white episode with Frank Gorshin, Gunsmoke, Bonanza, Bewitched, The Flying Nun, Mod Squad, Cannon, Mission Impossible, Night Gallery, The Rookies, and Remington Steel. He appeared in the movies Frankie and Johnny Are Married, The Finks, Cool Hand Luke, and Hawaii, and he appeared in the TV movies Partners in Crime, Where the Ladies Go, and Face to Face. 
He also has 87 directing credits, including for episodes of Gentle Ben, The Flying Nun, Partridge Family, McLeod, The Rockford Files, Macmillan and Wife, Picket Fences, American Gothic, Chicago Hope, Dawson's Creek, CSI, and Boston Legal. And he has directing credits for the TV movies Someone I Touched, The Girl in the Empty Grave, Between Friends, 13 at Dinner, The Last Prostitute, The Rape of Dr. Willis, Face to Face, and Nightmare in Daylight. Charlie Ling was played by Tommy Fujiwara. This is his eighth of 24 episodes. Melissa was played by Linda Ryan. This is her third of 11 episodes. We also saw her in Most Likely to Murder and A Time to Die. The gas station attendant was played by Gary Ava. This is his fourth of five episodes. Resident was played by Michael Leong. This is his third of four episodes. We also saw him in One for the Money and A Time to Die. Harriet Harper was played by Loretta Leversey. She appeared in episodes of The Aldrich Family, Craft Theater, The Naked City, The Doctors and the Nurses, Dr. Kildare, Mod Squad, Mannix, Bonanza, Room 222, and The New Perry Mason. She appeared in the movies The Other, Up the Down Staircase, and The Playground. And she appeared in the TV movies Terror in the Sky, The Astronaut, and Sandcastles. And that is Burning Ice. I really do enjoy this episode because it is so much about Steve not trusting the obvious. And that you do get lulled into the investigation and how it focuses so much on David Harper and how it looks like there can't be any other explanation than the one that you're seeing. And that maybe Southmore just kind of got lucky with someone killing his wife. It just, it all comes together so well. The ending is particularly great, which obviously I'm not going to spoil. But the way everything comes together and the plausibility of everything and how the obvious gives way to something just as obvious, if you look a little deeper, it makes perfect sense. It's just so good. So, so good. Give this one a watch. I thought your uncle was Chinese. Oh, he is. But his joint is in a Japanese neighborhood, so he's passing. <laughs> <laughs> Episode 10, Rest in Peace, Somebody. Air date, November 16th, 1971. Directed by Paul Stanley, this is his 13th of 19 episodes. And written by John D.F. Black, this is his 7th of 10 episodes. Steve gets to work very early, grabbing the mail on the way to his office. His personal line rings, and he's greeted by an anonymous caller who sent him a key in the mail. He says it's up to Steve to figure out what it goes to, because whoever is behind that door is who he's going to kill. He also tells him to call Eddie at the advertiser and ask him about any letters he received from someone named Mona, and then hangs up. Steve immediately calls Eddie, who reads the letter. It tells him to check his middle desk drawer, which Steve does, finding a photo album. Inside is a message saying that photos will be arriving soon, and then an anonymous 51 hours. Daniel comes in at that moment with a photo of a garage door he found inside his locked car. On the back, it says, rest in peace. Dano listens to the call, wondering for a moment if it's a prank, but Steve doubts that. This person got into his office and into Danny's car. Kono comes in looking a little shaken with a letter he found on a six-pack in his fridge. The letter says that the key doesn't fit Kono's door. Chin comes in and asks why they have a picture of his garage on the board. 
Steve and Shin rush over to Chin's house and check the garage. Everything seems to be fine, and Shin leaves to tell his wife so. But Steve looks up and sees a message spray-painted on the garage ceiling. False clue, stupid. It turns out that Mona sent a letter to Chin's wife, upsetting her, which upsets Chin. He wants to get this guy. Kono traces the photo album to a salesman who said he sold six to an older lady who was going to paint hula girls on them and hustle them to tourists. That's a dead end. 5-0 doesn't have much to go on. The typewriter the letters were written on has a distinctive S, but they'd have to find it. Mona calls back and taunts Steve, saying he's going to kill in 48 hours, and running a trace on the line is useless because he'll be gone by the time anyone gets there. He then tells Steve to check Danny's trunk. They do, with a certain degree of caution, finding a load of dead fish inside, and a letter saying that Danny's not the target, but Steve could be. Kono is checking out the phone booth. The call was traced to anyway. Danny is on the mysterious key, and Jenny is on Steve's schedule. He sends Chin to deal with the Kamehameha Day Parade logistics meeting so he can spend some time working on the case before he has to go to the Senate appropriations meeting about the 5-0 budget. Eddie calls in saying he received another letter from Mona, ranting about how Steve doesn't know what the key fits and how to do his job. Steve asks him to sit on it. Danny talks to the key maker, who's blind, but is still able to give Danny something of a description. Taller than Danny, strong hands, most likely right-handed. He also gives Danny his card. His name? Joe Mona. He's not the Mona in question, but we know where Mona did get his name. Steve gets a call saying the budget meeting has been moved up, so he heads over to find the room empty. Mona calls him while he's there and tells him to check his hanky. Steve does, finding nothing. That's because, according to Mona, he's a puppet on a string. Mona can make him do whatever he wants because Steve can't find him. He then tells him to go back to his office. He might give him a clue. A psyche valve of Mona suggests that his fixation is on Steve. He's the one Mona addresses, and he's the one Mona directs his insults to. He might not be the target, but the target no doubt has a connection to Steve. Mona is very clever, and more importantly, he's trying to prove how clever he is. If he tells Steve who the victim is, he'll be telling the truth. Mona sneaks into Steve's office after hours, putting a letter on his desk before doing some redecorating, splashing red paint on it before walking out with a can drizzling a trail behind him. Steve is less than thrilled when he finds the mess the next morning, but the letter says to follow the trail and it will lead him to the door the key fits. Steve does so, ending up at the governor's office. The killer deadline is Kamehameha Day the governor's most public day of the year, and Steve doesn't have enough men to keep him safe. This episode is fantastic because it puts 5-0 up against a villain who is not only unseen throughout most of the episode, we only get his voice, is also unknown to them until the very end, and in many ways is better than they are because this person... Mona is amazing at psychological torture. Just how carefully thought out and executed this plan is. My heart, my God, I love it so, so much. You know me, I love big, grandiose, over-the-top planning. It makes me happy to have just a bad guy come in and do outlandish shit. This is kind of on the opposite end of that in the sense that this is incredibly diabolical and well-executed, and it makes me so, so happy. Now, obviously, it's a little hard to watch 5-0 floundering a little bit in that they're kind of at a loss. They're a little bit behind because this person has managed to get into Steve's office, plant a photo album, get a hold of his private lines number, knows that Steve is recording as soon as he picks up the phone, knows that he's going to dust that album for Prince. He knows that the line is going to be traced and that he'll be long gone by the time 5 or HPD gets there to investigate where the call is coming from. He doesn't leave Prince. He's able to access Danny's car, even though it's in his carport and it's locked. He's able to get into Kono's house while he's sleeping and leave a letter on his six pack. He's able to get into Chin's garage and spray paint something on the ceiling while also sending his wife a letter and upsetting his wife. He is able to get into Danny's trunk to leave that load of fish there. 
He knows Steve's schedule, so he knows he's supposed to go to the Senate Appropriation Committee, and he manages to fake a phone call to Jenny to make him go earlier so he can get him alone. He call, he tells him to check his handkerchief, and Steve does, but finds nothing. And he says, it's because you're a puppet on a string. It's because you don't know where I am or who I am. You can't stop me. And he is adamant that he is going to kill someone at the designated time. So when we first get the photo album, it's 51 hours. And then at one point during one of the phone calls, he says it's 48. It's incredibly intricate and well executed the way he is waging this psychological war against 5-0. Because he has infiltrated their spaces, not just their personal spaces, but also their 5-0 spaces. And he seems to be very knowledgeable, not only of their schedules, but also procedure. He is a formidable adversary, especially since they really have no idea who they're up against. And they're tracing what they can. They're getting whatever evidence they can to try to figure this out. So they investigate the photo albums, which leads to a very interesting conversation with the guy who sells them. Mr. Kamani, my name is Kona. I'm with Hawaii Five-O. Have you ever seen this before? hundreds like that. I sell them. 69 cents a piece on sale. Only one we care about is this one. We find your fingerprints on it. I'm going to find my fingerprints on all of them, brother. I know we're no doubt. Can you remember who you sold this to? Anybody particular in the past couple weeks? Only one customer. What six. Can you describe him? What's it? No, him. was a lady. Well, what does she look like? Local. About 250 pounds. 50 years old. Black hair, sharp, like a guy's. She said she was going to paint hula girls on the covers and hustle them to tourists. So they don't have much in the way of a suspect from that. They don't pull up anything from the phone booth, from where one of the calls, they trace one of the calls to. Danny tracks down the key, and we meet Joe Mona, who is a blind key maker, and he identifies the key, and he does give them something helpful. He knows that he made that key and he gives them a little bit of a description from his perception as a blind man of the person. But again, this just goes to show how clever this guy is because he picked someone who couldn't pick him out of a lineup. You can't give a detailed description of what he looks like or who he is. And then taking the man's last name to send letters to the newspaper in order to taunt, not only to taunt Steve, but he's trying to get this story out in the public. He wants everyone to know how shitty Steve is at his job. And this is also why he's going to kill who he is going to kill to further highlight how shitacular he is at his job, which we all know is not true. Steve is amazing. But he and 5 are really at a loss. And in the background of that, part of the scheduling that Jenny goes over is the Kamehameha Day parade and activities. Kamehameha Day is huge in Hawaii, obviously, because it celebrates King Kamehameha. So there's parades, festivities, there's all sorts of activities to celebrate. And obviously, 5 is going to be involved with many of the logistics of that, particularly when it comes to approving what the governor can and cannot do, because they will be providing security for the governor. When that comes up first, you think that, okay, yes, there's other stuff that's going on, even though Steve's very much focused on this case. And he says he sends Chin to that committee meeting, citing the need to work on the case and that he'll take up the budget appropriations meeting later. So you think it's just a ploy to show how important this case is to Steve, but it turns out to mean quite a bit once we find out who Mona's target is. And that happens when Mona breaks into Steve's office once again, leaves a letter, dumps paint on his desk and on the floor, and then leaves a trail of paint to the governor's office, which is literally going out of the Olani Palace and down the street up to the governor's office. Here's the thing that just kills me. Steve comes in and he's obviously very unhappy about this redecoration. I would be too. Do you know who should be the most pissed? Whoever is cleaning that up whatever minimum wage employee has to mop up that mess who has to clean up the paint off of the floor off of his desk off of the floors in the governor's office i would be livid if it were me i would hunt that man down myself and do a murder for making that kind of mess that my minimum wage has to clean up but anyway he follows the trail to the governor's office 
and opens the door and we realize, okay, the target is the governor. Now, here's the thing. Throughout all of this, every time they are opening something or investigating something, for example, they're opening Chin's garage, they are taking precautions, preparing for something to leap out at them. Basically, you're building to a jump scare because the music does that as well. And each time there's nothing there. So they do it with Chin's garage, open the garage. There's nothing apparently in there. They do it with Danny's trunk. He opens the trunk. They're like standing back. It's just dead fish. And he does it with the governor's office. He goes, he puts that key that he has been given into the door to the governor's office and opens it up carefully and nothing happens. Again, it's a great psychological tactic. They are expecting the worst and really outside of some dead fish, nothing too terrible happens. But it is, it's a great psychological tactic because you as the audience are waiting for something to come out. This guy is leaving clues. You're waiting for something to happen. And after they open Danny's trunk, it says Steve could be the target. Now, the psychologist, of course, disagrees with that. He doesn't think Steve's the target. Now, there's no hint as to who the victim is going to be, but there is one factor that makes it curious. He says Steve is not the victim. And yet, at the same time, he makes every reference to Steve a chop. Calls him stupid, dummy. Calls him a lousy and effective cop. No one else. Just Steve. I don't know what that means, but it opens the possibility that Steve and the intended victim are tied together some way. Who can be more connected to Steve than the man that whose life that he is responsible for, especially in King Kamehameha Day? Now, King Kamehameha Day, as they say in the episode, is the governor's most public day of the year because he'll be at the parade, he'll be at a dedication ceremony, he'll be doing all sorts of stuff. And Steve pleads with him to go to his house on the Big Island and let the lieutenant governor take over those duties because it'll be easier for them to protect him there, and he won't do it. I understand your concern, Steve. I, I share it. It's my life that's being threatened. And I don't have a hero complex or any feeling of immortality, but I'm the governor of the state of Hawaii, Steve. And 5-0 is responsible for your safety. Therefore, I have no alternative but to ask you to please go to your home on a big island where we can protect you until the situation is cleared up. I can't do that. Well, the lieutenant governor can act in your stead. Yes, he can. And then what do we do the next time there's a threat? kitchen is hot, Steve. But that heat comes with the job now. It's built in. I don't like it, but I took the job. Heat and all. I asked for it. What good is a dead governor, sir? What good is a governor who concedes to threats? All it would take to run me out of my office is a note threatening my life. Government can't function under those conditions. There's no pleasure in the risk, Steve, but I know my job. So they come to a compromise, and that's basically that he will have men with him 24-7. Steve asks that he doesn't do any confidential business over the phone, that he takes as much business over the phone as he can, and that even though he's going to be out for King Kamehameha Day, they're going to limit his exposure as much as possible. They're going to put up bulletproof glass, and they ask him to wear a vest. And the governor is reasonable enough to go along with these compromises. Even though they still don't know exactly who Mona is, they know who his target is and they're going to try to do their best to prevent the governor from being killed. Now, knowing who the target is and having that psychological evaluation in his hip pocket now that Steve knows that this man is very clever, but more importantly, he's going to prove how clever he is. And that Steve is truly the target because, as Danny points out, the governor might be the target for the murder, but Steve's the true target because what would torture Steve more than to murder the man that he's responsible for and totally rip him to shreds in the public eye? Because Mona goes off at one point about how the newspapers aren't publishing the story, but he's going to make sure the story gets out. He is dedicated to making sure that Steve suffers the most. And as I always say, if they're dead, they're not suffering. And Mona subscribes to my beliefs. And he wants him punished. He wants him torn down. He wants him fired. He wants him humiliated. Killing the governor will do that because it'll show him to be inept at his job. 
So it's with that realization and the psyche valve and knowing who the target is that when Mona calls again, Steve has a little bit of an upper hand in that he pokes at Mona a little bit and gets him to reveal something unintentionally that Steve is then able to work out. I'm not stupid. It's you that's stupid. But that doesn't stop you, does it? Stop me from what? Playing judge, 10 idol, judging better men than you are. He takes that phrase, 10 idol, because it sounds familiar to him, and he racks his brains and comes up with a guy by the name of Bill Cameron. Bill Cameron was a police officer who received a police brutality complaint that Steve investigated. Fivo investigated on behalf of HPD and found out that it had merit and also turned up multiple other instances of police brutality that weren't reported because they were small time people who didn't have the power they felt to go up against the cop because it was petty crooks, prostitutes, that sort of thing. They can't make complaints because they're criminals. However, the report that they investigated was that he roughed up a juvenile on suspicion that he'd stolen a car, but the car was his. And the kid's dad made the complaint. And as a result, there was a hearing and Steve recommended dismissal and Cameron was fired. It's pointed out that Cameron, outside of the police brutality, he was a perfect officer. Uniform was always pressed. He was fifth in his class and he was a top marksman, which does not put the governor at ease, considering it's his life on the line. And it also poses yet another problem for 5 Because he is a former officer, who better than to infiltrate the security designed to keep the governor safe? There's nothing brutal about this guest cast, so let's take a look at them. Cameron, whom we literally only see at the very end of the episode, is played by Norman Alden. He has 253 credits going back to 1953 on IMDb. He was Captain Lucius Grundy on Not For Hire, Seaman Herman Pulaski on Hennessy, Captain Horton on Rango, Henry Hank McSummers on Devlin, Coach Leroy Fetters on Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, Al Cassidy on Faye, Frank Heflin on Electra Woman and Dinah Girl, and he was the voice of Aquaman on Super Friends and the all-new Super Friends Hour. He also made appearances on Leave it to Beaver, Circus Boy, Perry Mason, Mr. Lucky, The Untouchables, Hawaiian Eye, Bonanza, 77 Sunset Strip, The Rifleman, My Favorite Martian, Honey West, The Andy Griffith Show, Big Valley, Lassie, The Doris Day Show, My Three Sons, Mod Squad, Kung Fu, Gunsmoke, Chopper One, The Planet of the Apes, Cannon, The Rookies, Adam 12, Kojak, Quincy M.E., Dallas, Eight is Enough, David Cassidy, Man Undercover, The Love Boat, Charlie's Angels, Fantasy Island, Enos, Falcon Crest, The A-Team, Matt Houston, Hunter, both the 70s TV show and the 80s TV show, Small Wonder, Cagney and Lacey, Valerie, and Jag. He appeared in the movies K-Pax, Patch Adams, Ed Wood, Cutting Class, They Live, Back to the Future, Semi-Tough, Ben, Tora, 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 and The Devil's Brigade. And he appeared in the TV movies Murdoch's Gang, Terror on the 40th Floor, Ring of Passion, No Other Love, Lady Mobster, Man Against the Mob, Man Against the Mob, The Chinatown Murders, and Night of the Wolf. Dr. Rosenstadt was played by Danny Kamakona. This is his 11th of 33 episodes. Eddie Sherman was played by Eddie Sherman. He was in four other episodes. George Kamani was played by Thomas Leslie Jr. This is his first of two episodes, and those are his only credits. Joe Mona was played by Clarence Ina, and this is his only credit. And in an uncredited role, the tour bus driver was once again Yankee Chang, and this is his seventh of 17 episodes. And that is Rest in Peace, Somebody. Absolutely love this episode. You have a diabolical villain putting Five-O through the ringer in a psychological game of cat and mouse. And even though, like, at the 30-minute mark, 
thereabouts, 30, 35 minute mark, you have the revelation that the governor is the target, it resolves nothing. It does nothing to resolve any of the tension because you still aren't sure who Mona is until very much so near the end. And there's still the matter of keeping the governor safe. So even though some of the psychological element falls away, at least the psychological torture element of 5.0 falls away, you still have that tension of keeping the governor safe and catching this guy. It's riveting. Even me spoiling who's the culprit behind this, it takes nothing away from the viewing. It's such a good episode that even multiple viewings doesn't lessen the impact of the entire experience. Definitely give this one a watch. What's the matter, Kono? You look shook. Some banana got into my kitchen last night while I was sleeping, boss. Left this in my refrigerator on a six-pack. That could shake you up if you are sensitive or something, brother. And that is episode 43 of Bookum Dano. Two fantastic episodes. Love them both so much. They both have a very interesting premises. In the first, we have the obvious case that isn't so obvious. And then in the second, we have the psychological torture element giving way to a diabolical revenge plot. Both of them are just so good. And as I said, both of them, repeated viewings, do not lessen their entertainment value. They're fantastic. And you are also fantastic. Thank you so much for listening. I always appreciate your ears. If you'd like to find me online, you can do that by going to akakikiwrites.com. It is the home of Bookum Dano. You can also find me at my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. And if you need my diabolical plans in real time, you can get those by following me on Twitter at kikiwrites. So make your backup plans because you know the American healthcare system is garbage. And check your trunk for dead fish on a regular basis. Until next time. Aloha.